0: Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday.
1: It's passed down as a prophecy. Every year about this
0: time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras.
1: Well, welcome back once again to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. We're also found on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and I'm joined in studio again today by Nathan Oblack and Dr. Joe Boot. It's good to be here again, guys.
2: Likewise. Great to be back.
1: I know that uh, we've, been, uh, we've been saying for a couple of weeks that, uh, and we've been saying all along, that we really love, we really appreciate getting your questions emailed into us, uh, tweeted at us, sent to us through social media. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to a... Uh, q and A Q&A episode of the podcast very soon next week or the week after.
2: And Ryan, we just got a question submitted from Hawaii, so they from are officially Hawaii. off the blacklist. Ha-
1: all right, <laughs> Hawaii is on the map or off the map, depending That's on. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good job, Hawaii! Thanks. We'll uh, we'll get back to you.
0: Yeah, we've had some we've had some questions about you know theonomy. What is it? How do we define it and understand it as well mm-hmm. from BC? So we are going to get to these questions. Yeah, mm. just want to assure people who are writing to us, it's right. coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: we're looking forward to that. It's not too late. We always love getting those questions. Uh, again, send those in through social media, visit our website ezrainstitute.ca, and uh, send us an email through our uh, through our contact form there. And we don't uh, we don't say this much, but we are, we're a nonprofit. We rely on the support of our uh, our listeners and our donors. While you're there at the website, if you click that uh, big conspicuous green donate button and sign up for a monthly support, uh, pledge of any amount. We, uh, we really appreciate that. That helps do it us. today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Do it> today. <laughs> yeah. That helps us to, uh, to keep going to, uh, to get the equipment that we need to produce this, uh, this podcast and other resources. Uh, we, uh, very grateful for your support. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Nate, do you have anything else to, uh, to add before we jump into today's topic? Yeah,
2: yeah, sure. I I know we've referenced this many times on the podcast before, but we uh, have an exciting uh, week coming up here at the Ezra Institute Uh, on Monday, November 15th. We've got our Niagara Declaration Conference uh, where the theme is Church, State, and the Future of Liberty. And we've got Joe speaking, uh, Tim Stevens from out in Alberta, Dr. Aaron Rock, and Andre Schutten. And we're looking forward to that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a hot ticket as it sold out weeks ago. And uh, we're really excited for that day. And then the rest of the week... You're
1: you're talking a lot about an event that they can't come to. Yeah, (laughs) well...
0: Yeah, sign up for the pastor's colloquium. (laughs) Send your pastor instead. Well, is that a good opportunity for you to follow up, Brian, by um, telling them about the forthcoming portal? That's uh, right. Where they will be able to access some of this content. Mm -hmm.
1: That's right. And we'll, uh, again, we'll have more to say about this in the coming weeks, but... First quarter of 2022, uh, we are preparing to launch a new uh, subscription-based learning portal. And that's going to be a series of uh, well-produced video courses uh, from Dr. Boot, from some of our other fellows, some of our friends. And people will be able to register, uh, pay their subscription fee, and work through those courses in a, a systematic way at their own pace. Have access to awesome supplementary materials, worksheets. It's a great resource that uh, we're developing, uh, if I say so myself, for something like your uh, your church's adult Sunday school, uh, your high school's uh, apologetics class, mm-hmm. these kinds of mm-hmm. things. Uh, for your own, for your own family's personal uh, instruction and edification, somewhere you can go and get, uh, you know. Senior level, college level uh, education into the areas that you're not, fr- frankly, you're not going to get at a lot of colleges today. Even Christian colleges are not uh, are not touching the kind of material that mm. that, uh, that may have that been, we'll been be an understatement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that Ryan <it> not he's <laughs> not known for those. I, mean, I didn't have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anything else planned, so I was trying to be a bit diplomatic.
2: <laughs> yeah, and Ryan, just before you started talking about the portal there, I mentioned sending your pastor, uh, because we've got the Niagara Declaration Conference on the Monday, but for the remainder of the week, we have the Church and Culture Pastors Colloquium. But That's, that's right. And it's not only for pastors, it's for anyone in church leadership. So if there's someone you think that might benefit for, for being at the program, send them. There are still a few spots, very limited at the moment, but there are a few spots. And of course, if they get into that colloquium program, they'll get access to the Niagara Declaration Conference as well. And uh, at the colloquium, we've got all the speakers we just mentioned for the conference, but we've also got Michael Thiessen, Andrew Sandlin, James White, and Doug Wilson.
1: It's a pretty good lineup. Mm. Yeah, pa- pastors, mm. you're not uh, not going to want to miss that. So, and again, visit, uh, visit the website, ezrainstitute.ca. You can get uh, information on all of that and register right there. All right. I think we're, uh, yeah. we're good I, for... <laughs>
2: I think we gave you an easier
1: transition than we normally do. Yeah. There, <laughs> <laughs> so, gents, as we, uh, as we sit here, it's early November. We've just come through Reformation Day. October thirty first, the anniversary that of the date that Martin Luther famously nailed the ninety five theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, and this uh, this day I didn't even I knew that there was a Reformation. I didn't know that we marked the anniversary like until I was in college, but it's uh, we've come to come to see this as something to be celebrated, and I was I was thinking that uh, or just observing that there are. You know Catholics like uh, Matt Walsh, famously, who good guy, but he was tweeting the other day about mm-hmm. how he's he's just just scandalized, just appalled yeah. that mm-hmm. that uh, people who call themselves Christians would want to celebrate an right. event as uh, as divisive and schismatic right. as the Reformation. Right.
2: He he called it similar to celebrating a
0: divorce.
1: That's right, a mm-hmm. divorce party.
0: Right. And what do we say about the schism of the Eastern and Western Church, then? <laughs> the Greek and the Latin Church. Never mind. We don't want to bung up the process with awkward questions. No, no.
1: Well, it just uh, it got us, got us thinking here for today. Um, and then, then you see, on the other side, um, even, uh, even pastors or other theologians who call themselves Reformed, uh, who sort of self-identify in that tradition, in that, uh, that stream of thought, that this was a strictly um, ecclesiastical movement. Mm-hmm. And actually, Joe, something that you said a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and you kind of said it as a by-the-way comment, but it stuck with me that the Reformation was not simply a, you know, an issue of ecclesiastical reform. Uh, so what I uh, what I wanted to start us off with today, uh, maybe you could just tell us about some of the some of the broader implications that the Reformation had not only in the church but in uh, in other areas of life.
0: Yeah, it's a good place to begin by saying that we're not. Uh, it's absurd to say we're celebrating division or schism. That's not what's being celebrated. Mm. The Reformation. Remember that the the goal of the reformers was to reform the church. Uh, they didn't. They weren't longing for uh, a, a schism in the church. They were trying to reform the church itst- itself. And as you as you well know, Ryan, the uh, the ninety five theses were a complaint about abuses in the church that Christians were calling for. That's right. Um, Fully,
1: some thirty of them were just dealing with indulgences. Indulgences,
0: precisely. So uh, the. The, the the fact is is that the goal was not schism unfortunately the end result uh, needed to be a uh, a fracturing in the church well but in the providence and the sovereignty of god we see that a tremendous amount of good came out of it uh, but the the goal was going back to the word of god as our foundation and that's what we're celebrating we're not celebrating or recognizing uh, uh you know the, the somehow the divorce in the the Church of God is a good thing but rather that uh, in the in the Reformation we see a reform back to the Word of God that was absolutely critically necessary and has proven a tremendous blessing in the world and uh, un, uh, un, unequivocally so uh, a blessing now were there problems were there challenges were there conflicts of course mm-hmm. but overall you look at the fruit of the Reformation and it was a it was a a, a tremendous blessing and that's what we're, we're thanking God for that really is what we're doing now, at the same time, to, your, to the, the specific of the question about how really um, the struggle increasingly these days is um, with those who profess an evangelical or even a reformed faith who seem to want to leave the uh, Reformation uh, in the ecclesiastical sphere and almost view it purely as uh, a, a reform around certain Christian doctrines or re-emphasis of justification by faith, perhaps predestination, um, and an attack on some of the excesses of the Roman Church, the indulgences, purgatory, and um, relics, and so on. And uh, and so, you know, that's what the Reformation was about. It was about soteriology. It was right. about, and perhaps, uh, a, and at the same time, some reform of church government. So it was soteriology doctrinally, and uh, it was ecclesiology uh, in terms of governance that was the focus of the Reformation. And um, I would absolutely dispute that. Uh, Those were certainly fruits of the Reformation, Mm -hmm. that there was reform in the ecclesiastical structure, uh, and that there was a re-emphasis on a number of biblical doctrines, including justification and in in Luther, in particular, predestination. Um, In Calvin, it was the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God over all of life, uh, the sanctification of the vocations of every area of life, and a kind of of, deprivileging of clergy in that respect, uh, and uh, an emphasis actually in Calvin, he is often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. That's right. Um, an emphasis on the work uh, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, it shouldn't escape people's notice that when these reformers were writing their treaties, they were often addressed to kings and princes right. and yep. governors and presented to them. Right. Because but there Cal- was a. Yeah. Re- Calvin's Institutes
2: being a great example. Precisely.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, because th- they recognized that there was a socio-cultural, political significance to what they were writing. Mm-hmm. And who could doubt that when you have things like the Geneva Bible, mm-hmm. which emerged uh, from the Reformation, and all the notes that you get, the, uh, the commentary that you get in the Geneva Bible, and what a threat uh, many European rulers uh, felt the Geneva Bible was with its commentary um, to their absolute rule. Um, and so the notion that we can sort of ecclesiasticize the Reformation as we like to ecclesiasticize the Bible today mm. is, well, it's difficult to find the right word for it, but it is simply preposterous to, 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 to make out that the Reformation was an essentially uh, a, uh, an ecclesiastical movement that was interested in just the reform of a few aspects of church dogmatics. It wasn't that, but you talk to a lot of modern evangelicals, and you look at a lot of modern evangelical movements, and you would think that really the Reformation was simply about a re-emphasis on my personal salvation, my justification, and possibly predestination, but essentially some the soteriology. And so uh, the beauty, I think, that the power of the Reformation and what flows out of it is that, of course, those things are a part of the broader picture of this incredible re-emphasis on the fullness of the Word of God, its application to all of life, and the absolute sovereignty of God over all of life. And I think that that fundamentally has to be our starting point.
1: Mm.
2: And Joe, you've used this term many times in the past, but maybe just for the benefit of some of our new listeners, this idea of ecclesiasticizing the Bible. Could you expand on what exactly you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so what we mean by that is saying that, that the Bible, the Word of God, is really just a church book, mm. that its that its sole function is to guide the, the life of the Christian church, the mm. institutional life of the church, and uh, in addition, the personal devotional life of the Christian. But the notion that the Word of God would be there to be a light to provide us that foundation in every area of life to mm. guide our steps, that it has application to... Um, law and medicine and education and the arts and the sciences and to kings and queens and presidents and prelates and that it it is God's covenant word for all of life in the world. That's what we believe about the word of God to ecclesiasticize it is to say no it's it's a church book and it's for the personal walk of the Christian Um, but it doesn't apply to the, the to the world as a whole and it, uh, it, it, it's not calling men and nations, as it were, into judgment. But, of course, that's exactly what the Word of God is doing at every point. Um, and it's precisely why God sends a Jonah to Nineveh, a Daniel to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and um, uh, an Esther into her situation, and a John the Baptist and the prophets, and an Amos to the pagan nations, and the gospel to all the nations, and uh, to teach everything I have commanded, the Lord Jesus says, discipling nations in terms of that word, because it has something to say uh, to all men and nations at all times. Um, If we ecclesiasticize the word, we call forth the secularization of the world, and that's what we're suffering under now. Hmm. So if you're saying that the
2: Reformation wasn't simply an ecclesiastical movement, there are cultural implications. Maybe you can Share with us what some of those cultural implications might have been.
0: Sure. So I think actually, um, um you know, sometimes on the program we recommend uh, a book now and again mm-hmm. uh, for for people to dip into. Almost always. Uh, I hope we do. I hope we're I hope we're recommending things that people we, we give them useful. so
1: little in the talk that uh, they yeah have that's to, right <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> they need to they've got to find outside. the meat somewhere yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so. Oh, sorry. I was just sipping my beer there. That was something that John Knox really believed in. Um, you couldn't go to Knox's place without being served a good uh, mug of beer. Apparently it's huh. part of our reformation day celebrations today. Excellent. Um, so, uh, a really helpful little book is called the legacy of John Calvin, his influence on the modern world by David Hall. Uh, it's published published by PNR publishing, um, legacy of John Calvin. Mm-hmm. And, um, I read this book a number of years ago, and uh, I remember being struck by uh, the different ways in which you can draw a, a direct line—you know, a pencil line—straight through to these different areas directly from Calvin in Geneva um, and on the, this the Calvinistic side of the Reformation. And he identifies uh, 10, 10 areas that we could perhaps mention um, quickly here mm-hmm. that uh, were the immediate implication of the Reformation beyond a re-emphasis on certain biblical uh, uh, doctrines um, for the the life of the Christian church, which of course are critically important, um, but the Reformation can't be left there. So here are are some of the areas. The first one that um, Hall identifies is education, the academy. And um, Calvin broke with that very um, limited medieval perspective that... uh, education was for an aristocratic elite. So if you want to know why you go to school today or you you had the opportunity to go to school, uh, you got the Reformation to thank because mm. uh, he founded an academy in 1559. It was a, a sort of pilot program uh, in a broad-based education for the city. Interestingly enough, it was, um, uh, it was funded by the Christians in the city, so you didn't pay fees to get your uh, education. And uh, it was it was alongside of a seminary so there was a general education and then there was a semin- seminary specifically for training pastors and leaders um and the this this became very much one of the um characteristics of the calvinistic influence in all areas of life it the the, the academy had um and developed departments of law and medicine so it wasn't just all oh, let's start a, a, a bible school for training some pastors that would be the ecclesiasticized view right, right. Calvin's Academy, no, was concerned with law and uh, medicine as well. And the the medical school um, shortly after Calvin's death um, uh, took a little while to be established, but it eventually got established in the 1700s. And um, it became a standard bearer. This academy became a standard bearer for education in all the major fields around Europe. So mm. education is one. and. Mm. We are today the beneficiaries because John Knox picked this up right. for Scotland, right. And then the Puritans, the Puritans took yeah, that up yeah. following Knox yeah. throughout England, and of course, mm-hmm. that was why it was exported to, to, to North America, right? And so, this Think of our Ivy League schools, precisely, right. mm-hmm. yeah. We can look at um, uh, Cambridge and Harvard and mm-hmm. uh, 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 Yale and so on, and recognize in these institutions the echo of calvin's academy Mm. they were they were a distinctly christian institution so there's one area immediately and i I don't understand sometimes why it's so difficult to just sort of see this and accept it because this is the historic reality it's just indisputable this is the emphasis that came on on a distinctly christian education um, based in the word of god Um, another area was welfare so there was, uh, there was care for the poor, uh, for the orphans, for needy, for displaced refugees. This is often actually not thought about um, when people think of Calvin and they think of the Reformation. They're not thinking about, oh, well, uh, yeah, that was predestination and uh, these heavy doctrines and uh, religious persecution, not care for the needy and orphans and widows. But that's what happened, uh, the Bourse. And it was the epitome of private charity. It was administered by the deacons. And uh, this was, uh, of course, late, much later in the development of, of the West in the late 19th century. You know, the state starts to copy the church yep. in trying to provide welfare. Mm-hmm. But this was a mercy ministry. It was orphans. It was the elderly. It was the sick. Um, and it, it involved um, uh, caring for those who were struggling in a, in a variety of different ways, even those who had uh illegitimate pregnancies and so forth these were the people that were being cared for calvin actually personally uh left part of his family inheritance to a boys school for Mm. poor immigrants so this is the kind of attitude and posture that the the reformed christians had toward welfare that this was an obligation of christians and this was something that they saw as emerging from the concerns of the bible um the interestingly enough, as you delve a bit deeper into it, their focus was on the genuinely disadvantaged. So it wasn't indiscriminate welfare. Uh, it uh, it had some right. prerequisites that mm-hmm. accompanied that assistance. It just wasn't given out willy nilly to people who behaved mm-hmm. however they liked. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not state largesse, as it were. So it was it was private religious charity. It was managed by officers of the of the churches and deacons. So there was accountability. Um a productive work ethic was sought so it was made clear that the assistance was temporary and people were encouraged to to get back to work so care for the poor is a really big one that came out of the uh the calvinistic side of the reformation too um the moral, moral law being re-emphasized uh, as something that is um central to social life and also Uh, central to uh, a kind of the development of a kind of common law where people are all aware of the law Mm. that man isn't left um, to natural law alone that requires a bunch of elite specialists who are going to have access to reason and natural law. Um, But uh, this was, there was actually revealed law and that revealed law was as gracious as it was necessary. Now this is a huge contribution of Calvinism to the whole idea of the rule of law And uh, the importance of people knowing the law and God's law is something that's uh, revealed. That's a real ethical contribution of Calvinism uh, that um, takes law out of the hands of the few in sort of um, abstract philosophy and puts it in the hands of everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And Calvin emphasized that the law of God has numerous ramifications, applications and implications. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just for... The governance of my personal life, but it had uh, social implications as well.
1: And it wasn't some arcane, time-bound uh, phenomenon, and revealed strictly to, and relevant strictly to, the Hebrews. Right, right, right.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, when you look at the work of you know Martin Buser, um and um, uh, and John Knox, and then of course later on the Puritans who are following Calvin, now they are looking for. The, the general equity, the present day applications, mm. the, 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 the fact that God doesn't waste any words mm-hmm. and that these laws are relevant to every aspect of life in, in every age. Um, a fourth contribution that Hall actually identifies is the, the freedom of the church. Mm. So when we think about uh, the, the liberty of the church today, mm. we have to think in terms of um, the impact again of the reformation uh the the vision of the reformers was a, 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 a that of a decentralized authority mm. and the church needed to be free from political interference which wow <laughs> be good if we to pick that one up a little bit mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. in the last couple of years in in the modern church you see if we m- mind these implications of the reformation we'd actually have many of the resources that we need to deal with uh present-day problems but unfortunately um, we've fallen into um, uh, a sort of groupthink era. So there was an insistence on separation of jurisdictions, um, and that uh, was something that was uh, there to help the integrity of the church. And we've talked about that a lot. And We talked about how Abraham Kuyper really recognized uh, in neo-Calvinism the role of Calvin in this basic principle of sphere sovereignty. And we talked about that a bit uh, on our on our last podcast. So if you missed that one, uh, folks, you can um, back up to last week and pick some of that up. So a free church was to be um, free from this hierarchical external civil control. And again, that was a major lasting contribution to the modern world that wouldn't be there. This political liberty for the church wouldn't be there were it not for uh, the Reformation. Uh, somewhat linked to that is the is the fifth um, implication that Hall points to, which is collegial governing or or, or uh, the Senate, as it were, um, in in Geneva. Um, let me just quote to you directly now from from this book. Uh, Hall writes that about Calvin. Um, in terms of a sermon on First Samuel eight, he says, and I quote: His 1561 exposition discusses the dangers of monarchy, the need for proper limitation of government and the place of divine sovereignty over all human governments. It is an example of Calvinism at its best, carefully balancing individual liberty and proper government, end quote. Hmm. Wow, what a shock Mm -hmm. uh, that the Reformation and that Calvin himself should actually be expounding uh, on these issues. When do we hear that today in in the modern evangelical church? What's happened? Right, and I think, I mean, you're only halfway through the list
2: here, and every single one of these has been willingly given over to the state.
0: Right. It's a very good observation. <laughs> Education. Welfare. Welfare. Law. Law. Uh, <laughs> and, and political government. right? Right. Freedom of the church. And the freedom of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, kings, according to Calvin, had authority only insofar as they met the conditions of God's covenant, and he calls them to submit uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's unequivocal and um you know he points out what the responsibilities of kings and rulers actually are in terms of the people that they're given the privilege of governing and actually uh, calvin viewed um exodus 18 as actually a good representative form of republican republican form where <laughs> um jethro he says there's there's the mind of god in this in this advice to hmm. to moses mm-hmm. uh about um devolved government yeah Uh, so that leads on to the sixth observation that hall makes which is decentralized politics so not just the lordship of christ and the authority of his word over governments and senates but a decentralized political life Local local government or councils so two councils were required in geneva to approve measures before they were ratified um the process of genevan elections was actually a mirror of calvin's view of human nature and the role of the state uh this whole idea of checks, balances, separation of powers, election of the residents, other elements of the federal structure of um, the United States that would later be copied um, as essentially an export of Geneva. So mm. you've got, um, and of course, it's in a more um, less developed, less refined form in Geneva. But here is the beginnings of, uh, of it uh, for the Western um, uh, tradition. Um, Let me uh, find another quote here uh, from Hall. And I quote, yes, let me quote now. Customs now taken for granted like freedom of speech, assembly and dissent were extended as Calvin's Dutch, British and Scottish disciples uh, refined these ideas. So uh, the whole idea of this decentralized politics and then um, political liberty. And while we're on that one, while we're on that particular point, um, this is something actually that, Francis Schaeffer Mm -hmm. picks up on in uh, his Christian manifesto, a Christian manifesto uh, where he uh, talks a bit about the limits of civil obedience, the limits of civil obedience. And he points to the reformation and in particular, one of the great heirs of the reformation, a disciple of John Calvin, John Knox, who actually uh, develops a theology of resistance to tyranny. Mm-hmm. And the last couple of years, and of course, going forward, as evangelicals, you know, as we look at the cultural situation and we think about what's going on, surely this is something that we desperately need again. Mm-hmm. Um, these are resources from the Reformation, from Calvin, from Knox, from Samuel Rutherford, the Puritans that followed them, that we desperately need again. There has been no articulation. Or at least it's been very few and far between of Christian leaders capable of articulating a theology of resistance. What we've seen dominating the evangelical landscape is authority, is is a theology of retreat Mm -hmm. and submission, um, not a theology of resistance. And the most significant uh, uh, theology that was really developed, I think, uh, at least uh, in the United Kingdom, was John Knox. Uh, John Knox, his admonition to England, that was probably the most significant, uh, where essentially uh, Knox there develops a theology of resistance based on the idea that the king is under God, uh, is under law, and when governments and authorities uh, expect you to obey things that are fundamentally at odds with the word of God, you have a duty to resist. Um in fact, after Knox wrote this, uh, Schaefer points out that thousands of Huguenots were, or Huguenots were offering resistance to the French government, and the year Knox died saw the beginning of the successful revolt and saving of Holland. Uh, Knox actually writes, and I'm quoting now, "The um, uh, sorry, Jasper Ridley in John Knox writes, and I quote, the theory of justification of revolution is Knox's special contribution to theological and political thought. Mm. The theory of the justification of revolution is Knox's special contribution to theological and political thought, um, and uh, basically, Schaefer goes, goes on to point out. He says, and I quote: "He maintained that the common people had the right and duty to disobedience and rebellion if state officials ruled contrary to the Bible. To do otherwise would be rebellion against God." End quote. So this this. Uh, um, this specific inheritance of the Reformation Schaeffer is pointing out when it comes to modern, and don't forget schaefer is talking about modern political problems, mm-hmm. modern political challenges, mm-hmm. modern social challenges. He's saying that the resources are there emerging from Calvin, Knox and the Reformation, that Kings and governments don't have an absolute power. They can't please themselves. Their power is limited by limited by the Lord himself. And here's, I think the most important statement that Schaeffer makes And I quote again, thus in almost every place where the Reformation flourished, there was not only religious noncompliance, there was civil disobedience as well. Mm. There was not only religious noncompliance, there was civil disobedience as well. And he goes on then to talk about the heirs of Calvin and Knox in the Puritans and Samuel Rutherford's um, Lex Mm. Rex, which means law is king. Uh, and that if the king and the government disobey the the law, they are to be disobeyed. And there's a whole rich tradition of this emerging directly out of the Reformation, and modern evangelicals act as though it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. for the most part. And, and we almost talk as though it doesn't exist, and we think that all we have to do is tell people about the parousia, point to the second coming, and batten down the hatches, and uh, submit, 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 submit and don't prophetically challenge the state um, or resist as though um, the office, the offices that God established are somehow held by right and are not conditional. Um, So, you know, tyranny for the reformers was somebody who ruled without God, Mm -hmm. somebody who ruled without proper divine sanction and without his law. And so to resist tyranny was to honor God. That's what it, that's what it actually meant. Tyranny was demonic for, for the reformers, it was satanic and therefore resisting that, which is demonic and satanic, um, is to honor the Lord. So, uh, that, that's a, that's a critically, we spent a little bit more time on that one because I think that's a critically important, mm-hmm. um, and especially relevant right now issue that emerges from, um, the reformation. Here's another really important one. This is number seven that, uh, that, uh, Hall, uh, picks up. And that is, um, among all professions or the doctrine of vocation which we do talk about and have spoken about fairly regularly on, uh, on our show uh, basically before Calvin and the, and the Reformation the doctrine of vocation was thought to be essentially for the clergy it was, it was a, that was something for the clergy. Uh, it wasn't for ordinary people but with Calvin's view of uh, the cultural mandate of human beings made in God's image Uh, and the dignity of work all disciplines and vocations lawful vocations are holy callings so uh, after Calvin one could be called to medicine you could be called into law you could be called into politics you could Mm -hmm. be called into the arts and so on which is of course what we emphasize endlessly as an institute Mm -hmm. and you know in our teaching and in our programs that these are Holy callings. This is the this is the specific contribution of the Reformation of Calvinism uh, that even Max Weber acknowledges um, that Calvinism dignified work and callings of many kinds: farming, teaching, business. These are valid callings from God. And so the Genevan Academy provided studies in um, in law, history, medicine, education, and on and on. So there was a breaking down of that sacred. Secular distinction, right. and uh, people, Christian people, were to be leaders in all fields of human endeavor, right in the here and now. And uh, if you if you look at the the these immediate heirs of the Reformation, uh, this whole notion of whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. You got these post-Reformation composers like Johann Sebastian Bach, who you remember signed off his original scores with the initial S.D.G. Mm-hmm. If only those who use that S.D.G. so frequently now mm-hmm. uh, ca- that it carried the same kind of connotation as it did for Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, "Glory to God alone." And you've got Rembrandt in art, you've got Milton in poetry, you've got Enthusiast in political theory, you've got Grotius in international law, you've got Adam Smith in economics. And these people are self-consciously operating out of a Calvinistic worldview. Uh, And they see themselves as direct heirs of the Reformation. So this is where, to me, the Reformation is super exciting. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course I'm excited by the recovery of a full understanding of justification by faith and that I don't need relics and indulgences to spring my grandmother from purgatory. Uh, but the, the 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 thrill of the Christian life surely is that the sovereignty of God is over all and that his word uh, applies to every area and that there is a kingdom calling for every single one of us, every listener, mm-hmm. you know, housewives, Um, those who are driving um, uh, delivery trucks of food or whatever it might be to a certain place, people serving in restaurants, uh, teachers in schools, people in uh, various businesses, those laboring in law and medicine. All of these areas are holy vocational callings. Mm -hmm. That's the Reformation. And this is where we're bringing glory to God as we apply his word to every area of life.
1: And this is why here at the institute we have fellows for the uh, right. i hate to use the word intersection but the intersection <laughs> the, of the gospel with medicine mm-hmm. economics mm-hmm. political theory law education education yeah
0: yeah. yeah i'm glad you uh, i'm glad you mentioned that because uh, you know if people go on to visit our website and they see all these different fellows mm-hmm. um And uh, there are people in in the months and years ahead will be hearing from these people more. Obviously, if you come to our actual in-person training programs, you Mm -hmm. get to hear from them. But uh, uh, as we develop this um, training portal, we're hoping that people will hear more from some of our our fellows. That's right. But that identification with fellows with different specific areas where they have devoted time and effort and energy to developing the Christian worldview applications, cultural apologetic, this is why they're there, because it's uh, all of life. It's reformational. It's reformational, right. exactly. Exactly.
2: And Joe, you asked the question, why do so many in the church ignore these implications? We can't deal with that question today, certainly, but read the introduction to Joe's book, Mission of God. And there are some reasons Joe lays out there that I think are quite accurate. Mm.
0: Good plug there, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate right. that, <laughs> yes. and I think you're right. That's a good place to start. Maybe fully a, accurate. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> a reformational <laughs> worldview. Um, uh, the eighth thing, so we're almost there here. The eighth thing that, uh, Hall identifies is the uh, economics and, um, uh, what we might call the, the entrepreneurial spirit to, 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 uh, develop uh, economic resources and build profit, build, um, a, a surplus, if you will. And so economic development as, as those who perhaps have paid some attention to the, uh, fruits of the Reformation, because it's been often written about this aspect, even by the secular sociologists and economists. the The contribution of Calvin to what is some kind, sometimes called the, the Puritan work ethic, mm. the notion of, of frugality, hard work, business. Um, out of the Reformation, of course, we see eventually emerging what we call today the Industrial Revolution, and um, a love of free markets and the importance of building capital. Now, I hesitate to use the word capitalism, because as you know, reformational people don't like isms, because where you've got an ism, you generally see a lifting out, and overemphasis on something. Yeah. So Calvin's view of, the, of, of, of markets, of money, of economics, was not that the only motive is the profit motive, which is what people tend to associate with capitalism. Rather, when we think about free markets biblically and capital, we're talking about How do we glorify God by using and improving the resources that we have so that a surplus is created, so that wealth is built, so that wealth can be used and applied, uh, put back into business, creates employment, and of course, uh, charity and welfare also provided. So the building of um, uh, the notion of um, personal holdings, personal private property uh, was for Calvin perfectly normal. That's something that God actually wanted. Um, and in the midst of that, a spirit of generosity with the businesses and the capital that we build. Um, and the the, the the building of a business, the goal is not solely capital. A business may be qualified by the economic aspect uh, in that it's, its primary goal is the generation of, of, of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as we know from, uh, as we've been teaching about the reformational worldview, uh, which Doivert builds here on the reformation, is that all of these aspects of life are associated. So you can't deal with a business, though it's led by, it's qualified by the economic aspect. You can't overlook the social aspects and the cultural aspects, the faith aspect and so on, as we think about business. So it'd be wrong to take a caricature of some sort of um, um, uh, miserly, Scrooge-type figure uh, emerging from the Reformation, concerned only with with profit, but you do have a concern for free markets, economic freedom, the building of wealth, so that we can uh, glorify God. And then uh, uh, a, a wonderful contribution too in the area of the arts was the music in the in the vernacular. So we had the the psalter. There's the translation of music uh, uh, and the psalms for public worship into the language of the day. So. There was a translation of the Psalms into mid-16th century French. So you have a kind of what we could call a democratizing of uh, holy song and other elements of worship where people start to become participants now in the liturgy where they weren't before. They were really essentially observers. I mean, you were observing a liturgy being performed for you by the priest. You watch the priest performing the mass, and um, you get to... A partake of the bread, the wafer, but that's pretty much it, um, and and even the singing was being done by uh, the priests, and so this um this democratizing of liturgy and the translation of the psalms um, led to development in music and an emphasis on the arts, and that's of course another uh immediate offspring of the Reformation. I mentioned Rembrandt and uh, Rembrandt, and we talked about Bach and so on, and you see this not just in painting and in music, but all the different arts you see be beginning to be emphasized and developed as a fruit of uh, the, um, the Reformation itself. So finally, um, the, uh, the, the power of, of, of publishing ideas, or we might say media, mm-hmm. um, and the, uh, the way in which the Reformation promoted literacy as well as education, and uh, the use of of media and fr- and a free press, um, the Gutenberg press, of course, uh, people people suffered a lot for initially for what they printed and what they published uh, during the period of the Reformation. But thousands of contraband books were spread around Europe during Calvin's time, and um, some of the distributors of that literature became martyrs. But that was the beginnings of what we might call a free press and and an emphasis on on people's freedom to have to, to speak and to and to publish and to uh, talk about what really mattered uh, to them so we might sum up by saying there was really at the center of this the the uh, of the reformation was calvin's emphasis on the sovereignty of god and what that meant for human life and vocations and our freedom in jesus christ so you had this tremendous emphasis upon um liberty and uh, uh David Hall actually uh, points out, he says that um, not incidentally, one of the first colonial law codes was named the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. So close were law and liberty that Calvin's disciples customarily associated law codes with tables of liberty. Uh, And so you see here this birth of liberty based in the word of God. Uh, That doesn't jettison the importance of civil government, but places limits on it and restrains leviathan. So uh, of all theologies, Calvinism made the most significant contribution to the development of a people's um, ruling of themselves, their right to elect their own leaders, to participate in their own uh, government. And that is another heritage that we have that we're actually you know, in danger of squandering even now in the West because of our failure to emphasize the fruits of the Reformation. So we've got the absolute sovereignty of God, which gives birth to various rights. We've got fundamental laws which are to be compatible with God's law, giving public liberty. We've got mutual covenants between rulers and the people. Uh, and we have um, a sense actually that the the the. the Civil government governs at the behest of the people, not the other way around. So they're not dictators, they're public servants, they're ministers, and they're representatives of the people, not of themselves. And that's the first line of defense against um, tyranny. And so these are some of the undeniable influences of of Calvinism and the Reformation upon the modern world that really helped birth what we uh called western or we still call western civilization which was really christendom and which do not i'm sure we'd agree uh don't get the emphasis that they actually deserve Mm -hmm. when we think about the reformation when most are thinking about these limited dogmatic and ecclesiastical matters
1: yeah absolutely like all of these things all of these sort of significant impacts and implications you know, there are very few within the church who would hear Calvin's name and think, "Oh, yeah, economic reform, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. the arts, yeah,
0: right, yeah. Um, a, a, a sanctification of all callings."
1: That's right. Right. Yeah. Well, we're uh, we've gone uh, gone long on our time. I don't regret it. Everything that we've uh, we've gone through was <laughs> was uh, was very worthwhile. One thing that I want to I suppose uh, we're biased. <laughs> one thing that I, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was excellent. <laughs> Obje- objectively worthwhile. <laughs> if this this is the on- gonna be the only episode that's that's mandatory listening for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh but one one thing that uh that I wanna sort of set up for our next episode, uh this leaves us uh all of us wondering if if all of this great stuff came out of this sort of first and second generation of the reformation uh what happened and you alluded mm-hmm. to that we've uh, we've fallen into a groupthink era right. that modern evangelicalism has largely ignored uh the gains of of Calvin and his contemporaries and his uh his followers uh we're just going to get into what happened and how did we how did we walk away from such an inheritance as that,
2: right? Yeah, it's almost as if we're now in a counter reformation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I think that would be a good place that to was a pick thing. up. <laughs> that was actually a thing, yes, right. <laughs> um, but there's a kind of new counter reformation right. that I think we could mm. spend some time picking up on as we return to our discussions around reformational thought next week. Maybe we can start there yeah. um, and uh, help people think through how. Uh, the Reformation itself and its priorities need to become our priorities again. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that'll be a great uh, great place to pick up. We'll, uh, we'll put a bookmark into it for, for this week. Thanks a lot, Joe, Nate. Good to have you both here again. From all of us at the Ezra Institute, I remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time.